Well, we have been moving through our series on church polity. We're nearly, we're nearly finished. I anticipate uh, we have this week and then uh, at least one more week is what I anticipate at this moment. Today, as you can see, we're going to be discussing this concept of members and membership. And, and I have to confess to you, you know, years ago as a, as a high school student and going into college and really just kind of getting exposed to ideas of things such as membership, I was pretty antagonistic towards the concept of membership. I thought it was just this man-made idea, and I thought it was something that, that really we have, no, we have no basis for in Scripture, and so therefore, why, why are we even doing this whole membership thing anyway? The Bible doesn't tell us, thou shalt observe membership, and so I, I, was, I was a scoffer towards the idea. I, I mocked the idea, and I said, you know, we really ought to step away from this and really come more towards a more organic approach to church life. And that is my history with the concepts of membership. And it was really only later through a handful of, of experiences and then my own careful study of the Scriptures and the principles found in the Word of God that I later became convinced that, you know what, membership... It is a healthy and a biblical idea, and it is good and worthwhile for churches to practice meaningful church membership, and that it is good for the people to attend the church, that they would join membership at a local church. And so my hope today as we move through a variety of texts, and this is going to be one of those sermons that we're going to be we're going to be bouncing around to a whole lot of text today. That's, that's not the norm for us here. Usually we're, again, just moving through portions of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today is kind of a more scattershot type sermon where we're examining many texts that help us understand a biblical principle that moves us in a direction to understand membership. So as we think about that, you know, again, the case for membership is a little bit of an unusual one. As I mentioned, we can't open up the Bible and find a commandment, thou shalt join membership at a local church. That that command is just not there. That verse simply doesn't exist. And really, to make matters worse, there are many bad ways to practice church membership that is harmful for the life of a church. And so we want to avoid those mistakes as well. I think it's common, especially in in this day and age, years ago, Church membership was taken a lot more seriously in broader church culture. It was something that that, that churches knew the significance of membership and they embraced it and internalized it into their lives. Well, as time has gone on, we've kind of moved away from that concept and most churches these days have a pretty loose definition and practice of church membership. In fact, we could say that Many churches, you wouldn't even know if membership was even an option at that church unless you specifically inquired about it. Some churches, you can literally join a church simply by filling out a card. You fill out your information, you turn that in, and boom, you're a member. You're good to go. On the flip side of that, though, there are some negative experiences of church memberships in some churches that that have more of an overbearing approach to leadership 
And that's especially felt in times of poorly executed church discipline, where membership is viewed as a negative thing because of an overbearing leadership in that way. And so as a result, you end up with, with most people within the church having a very, very little idea of what church membership means, why it matters. And of course, there are many, even such as myself, that were resistant to the concepts. Like it, it took a long time for me to come around and to embrace the idea of church membership. You know, many when it comes to the idea of membership and arguing for the concept, many take a, a top-down approach to arguing for the concept. And so they, they assume a, a, a series of practices of church membership that this is what church membership looks like. And then they argue from the top down from that and say, well, there, there are some biblical uh, texts that support the idea. What I'd like to do today is really argue from the bottom up. And what do I mean by that? Well, for, again, I mentioned what the top-down looks like. You're starting with a conception of what membership should look like based on history and cultural practices. Then seek to find justification for the practice from biblical texts. Well, from the bottom up, starts with the biblical texts, and it starts with principles found in the Word of God. And then from that, seeks to find the best ways to live out and apply those principles in our church context. And so the argument is essentially going to be that, that membership is really going to be the best way to live out the principles that we see from the biblical text. So it's a, it's a bottom-up approach. What does the Scripture teach us about how we relate to one another as a church body? And then seeing how the answer to the question, okay, this is what the principle is, how do we live that out? Hey, maybe membership is the best way for us to live that out. That's, that's our goal for today. That's how we want to approach it. So I'd like to start today by walking through some basic principles that we do see in Scripture and so that we end up with an end goal of, of a church polity structure that's centered on those biblical principles and not just cultural expectations. We want to make a distinction between the biblical principles and cultural expectations. So we're going to see five principles, and then when I, I want to follow that up by giving us a little bit of definition about how those principles end up getting worked out. So five principles that lead us to a practice of meaningful church membership. The first is regular assembling. And Liz, I think you're going to have to advance it again today. I'm not, uh, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to do some test runs to figure out what's going on with that, but I, I can't advance it from here. Regular assembling is the first principle that, that helps us think towards this idea. You know, we talked about this concept a few weeks ago when we were just defining what is a local church. Scripture is clear that we are under obligation to gather with one another and to do so on a regular basis for the purposes of worship and instruction and edification and exhortation. And the most often text that we see this playing out is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And that should be up on the screen for us. It says this, that we are not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So again, as we said a few weeks ago, the Bible knows nothing about those who had claimed to be believers in Jesus Christ who are not part of a local church assembly. Of course, there are a few exceptions to that, but they're extreme exceptions, right? We're talking about exile. We're talking about imprisonment. They, they physically can't get together with other believers because they're in jail, right? Well, that, but that's not the normal experience for most individuals. The expectation and the assumption is, is that if you are a believer, you will be with other believers, and it's for the purposes of encouraging one another, to spurring one another on to love and good deeds, as verse 24 of this same passage would say. The entire New Testament assumes that God's people will gather, and that we will be among one another, encouraging, exhorting, strengthening, discipling one another. And so we have language like there's a flock. Shepherd the flock of God as uh, Peter gives instructions to elders. Well, that assumes something. That assumes that there are sheep in a locality together in one place that they, they can be shepherded together. So when we see the language that the New Testament provides, we see that there is an assumption that there would be a gathering together. And so that leads us to ask the question, well, with who are we going to gather with? With whom will we gather? Does it, does it have to be the same people each time? Can you, can you just bounce around from church to church, never really putting down roots and, and just kind of live that way? It'll be, hey, we're gathering with God's people, so that's, that's all right, right? Is this what we see about the relationships that we're to have with one another? Consider Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about the necessity for the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. This is what believers are to be doing as we're equipped for ministry. We're to build one another up. How does, that, how does that continue to get fleshed out? Until we all attain the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. To what end? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness, by deceitful, uh, deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, as we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's got to be interaction between one another. There's got to be relationships between one another for this to happen. This doesn't happen when we're just disconnected individuals who just kind of like passing each other like ships in the night. Like maybe we come in, we hear things, and then we go out and, and we never engage one another. We never actually build relationships with one another. The principles that are expressed here in Ephesians 4 speak of being equipped for ministry, being built up in love, and finding stability in our faith. All of that would suggest that we would be committed to a local church body where we can give ourselves to one another for this purpose and where others can give themselves unto us for a mutual building up 
together in love. So the need to regularly assemble with a local church implies the need to belong to that church. Now this alone doesn't necessitate church membership. But I would argue that it begins to point us in that direction as we'll see some other principles that continue to build upon that. But the principle of regular assembling begins to build within us a need to belong so that this can happen. The second principle, guarding and upholding sound doctrine. Guarding and upholding sound doctrine. The leadership of a church is responsible to teach that which accords with sound doctrine. We see this. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the responsibility of the leadership of the church. We see this in other places as well, like Acts chapter 20, where Paul instructs the elders to give heed to themselves and to the flock because there will be false teaching. But Paul also expects the church as a whole to guard and uphold sound doctrine. This is an expectation of the church as a whole. And we see this in a variety of ways, and I've got three ways for us that we see this. First, look at how Paul holds the Galatian church as a whole accountable for failing to keep the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, notice who this is written to. we got Paul, an apostle, and then we see in verse 2, Uh, to the churches of Galatia. This is who Paul is writing to, the the churches as a whole. If we skip down to verses 6 and 7, we see him challenging them on a particular point. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, you have received, let him be accursed accursed. Paul directly confronted the churches as a whole, the the entire congregation, not just the leadership, but the whole church body, holding them accountable for failing to keep the gospel. Second, we see how Paul held the Corinthian church accountable to keep apostolic traditions, and we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. The church was holding on to something. He was commending them for that. But then on the, the flip side, down in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the, ver- for the worse. He, he's in, in two different areas. On one hand, he's commending them for embracing certain traditions, but then he is rebuking them for failing in other areas of instruction. And in this context, in verse 17 and following, the context is the Lord's table. 
They were failing to live out what he had he instructed them about the Lord's table, and he held them all accountable for that. They were all accountable for their failing in that regard. And the leaders were also accountable, but it was the congregation as a whole that also bore that responsibility. Finally, we see that the entire church is responsible to both guard and uphold sound doctrine through the way that Paul addressed entire churches and not just leadership when he wrote. And there are some letters that were specifically written to leaders. So we think of 1 and 2 Timothy, that's written to an individual, it's written to Timothy. We think of Titus, that's written to Titus, right? That's leaders within the church, instruction for them about how they are to lead. But there are most of the letters that were written were written to entire churches. And so we see instructions like Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. It's an instruction to the entire church. Philippians chapter 1, we see, was written to an entire church as well. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. He was addressing the entire church, the, the congregation and the elders and the deacons. The whole body was addressed. Colossians chapter 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And then he gives instructions in chapter 2 of the same letter where he says... See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There is a responsibility of the individuals, of the membership of the church, to guard and uphold sound doctrine. Just a couple more texts that bear this out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Test everything, hold fast to what is good, and then in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. If the congregation is responsible to uphold sound doctrine, as a matter of practicality, the concept of membership logically flows from this instruction. We must ask the question, how is the church supposed to obey this command? How are we to guard this doctrine in a practical way? How does this practically work itself out? If 20 people showed up next week to church, we would praise God for that, right? What if those 20 people said, all right, we want to we make a motion and we want to we vote to change the doctrinal statement of pillar fellowship? Well, we would have a problem with that, right? Like, that would be an issue. If they came in and said, all right, this, this, your, your pastor is preaching false doctrine, we, we need to remove him from the church. Well, do they have standing to do that? If we have this, this organic idea, well, we don't need membership, we don't need this, this defined way that we go about living life practically... Would they have that authority? And I say, well, that's ridiculous. They've, they've only just showed up. They've only been here a week. What if they were here for six months? What if they were here for a year? How much time has to go by? Is it just a matter of time? 
Well, church membership allows us to identify who belongs to our church so that we may practically obey these commands of guarding and upholding sound doctrine. The process of joining membership allows the leadership to hear the testimony of potential members, to hear them commit to our doctrine, to what we have uh, spelled out for us in our doctrinal statements. It's part of the guarding process to vet potential members. And then it's also the job of the membership then to uphold and to guard and not to undermine the doctrine such that the doctrine is attacked from within. But we have also the need to guard and uphold that sound doctrine from those who would attack it from without. And so the need, therefore, to, to guard and uphold the doctrine as we have for us in the Word of God, as we have in our doctrinal statements, it seems to demand some kind of membership process where we, whereby we can identify who belongs to this church and who has authority within this church. So that not just anybody can come in and change things on a whim. So the principle of guarding and upholding sound doctrine leads us to practice meaningful church membership. Third, the concepts of church discipline. Instructions for church discipline make it clear that, in fact, this is the language that the Bible uses, that there are insiders and outsiders to the church. And and if we were to go through all the texts on church discipline, we would see the process for how to discipline erring members, those who are in open and and, uh, obvious sin and in rebellion against the Lord and what His Word has to say, how we discipline erring members. We're just going to look at one text for the sake of time this morning. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a couple moments. The context here, Paul is addressing a significant sin that had been committed by one of the members of the church, an individual who was sleeping with his stepmother, The church had the responsibility to purge the evil from the midst of the church. If someone is living in open, unrepentant sin, the responsibility of the church is to put that individual out of the church for the sake of the purity of the life of the church. Now we know that the church is not just a building, right? So when it talks about putting someone outside the church, we're not just talking about you know, putting them outside the building and barring the doors so they can't come inside. No, there's more to it than that. It's, it's not just barring someone from attending services. This is about removing someone from the life of the church such that they cannot have influence upon other members within the church. Paul says to cleanse out the old leaven so that it cannot infect other parts of the church. And so it is with that backdrop that we look at verses 9 through 13. Where Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Whoops. Are all those not there? Here we go. Uh, So we don't associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Right, he's not talking about unbelievers and just engaging in life. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, and not even to eat with such a one. So we have someone who is, who is claiming to be a brother in Christ. He's claiming to be a believer, and yet he is in open, unrepentant sin and refuses to repent of that sin. Paul says, when we're putting him outside the church, we're not extending to him Christian hospitality. He's outside the church. And he uses this language. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? There's people in the world. They're living in sin. Sometimes we jokingly use the word, heathen's going to heath, right? They're, they're living in that way. Our, the judgment that we have is not against them, but is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Oh, what? We're supposed to judge? This is what the text says. Not in a judgmental way of, of seeking to you know, be overbearing upon that person, but it's a judgment that says, Like, you're living in sin. This isn't okay. And this sets a bad example for others within the church, and it brings shame upon the the name of Christ. We cannot allow that within our assembly. So that's what the judgment is referring to. And Paul goes on to say, God judges those on the outside, but for us, purge the evil person from among you. We see concept of insiders, outsiders makes it clear there's some kind of formal connection to the church that Paul says we're removing that from someone who's living in open, unrepentant sin. And so this leads us to consider how one becomes part of the church. How, how is that connection formalized? And so the concepts of church membership begin to be developed from this idea. And, and our hope and prayer always with church discipline issues, the hope and the prayer is always restoration, right? It is always that an individual would, would see the folly of their ways, see their sin, would repent of that and return in good conscience and return to the church and that the church would welcome that individual back into the life of the church. And we would see that played out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but we don't have time for that today. But that's the concept. There's, there's insiders, there's outsiders. There has to be some level of definition to that if we're to put someone on the outside and turn them over to Satan, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So this principle leads us to consider that membership is a biblical concept. Next, we see the concepts of oversight and submission. As we saw from previous weeks, elders are called to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. We also find in different texts that the church is responsible to submit to their leadership. 1 Peter chapter 5 speaks to this concept. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. A specific concept is right there. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Well, who makes up that flock? Who is this elder responsible for? The concept of church membership helps bring definition to this to know who the leadership is responsible for, who actually makes up the flock. If we were to 
to continue to go on in, in that same text, we would see, uh, I don't know if you can pull up, verse 5. There's the leader's responsibility to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, but there is also the responsibility of those within the church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's a responsibility to be subject to the leadership of the church. Well, who are they to be submissive to? There's, there has to be definition to these things, and, and membership helps us make those definitions clear. One more text that we could see that bears this out. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders. Well, who are those leaders? Is it just anyone who claims to be a leader in any church? Am I, do I, am I responsible to be submissive to the, the YouTube pastor, preacher on, the, on, the, on TV, on the internet? Is it the guy across town? Is it just is anybody? Who am I responsible to? Who are my leaders? And then down in verse 17. Obey your leaders. Again, that same question. Who are these people? And submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Well, that's a heavy responsibility. The leadership of the church. Keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. The leadership of the church is accountable for the flock, accountable for the congregation, accountable for those they keep watch over. The membership has a responsibility to obey and to submit to them. And again, there are abuses of this concept, right? We, we've seen the abuses. We've seen overbearing churches. We've seen that. And we don't want to go there. We don't want to go to those level of abuses. But that doesn't excuse us from the biblical responsibility that we see in the text. We want to do honor what the Word of God has to say and embrace it for what it is. But to do so in a biblical way. But as we think about this principle and this concept, okay, the, the elders and the leadership of the church has responsibility. They'll have to give an account. The, the, the congregation has individuals that they're responsible to. The concept of formal church membership helps bring definition to what that means and how that plays itself out practically in the life of the church. Finally, one more text that, or one more principle that helps us see the need for meaningful church membership is the concept of all the, the one another's, the one another passages to our scripture. There are so many. Throughout the New Testament, I was reading this week that, there, that the, the phrase one another is used 100 times in the New Testament. 97 verses across the New Testament where the phrase one another is used. And about 60% of those are specifically governing how individuals within the church are to relate to one another. About 60% of the one another's relate to relationships within the body of the church. Just a few examples. We have Romans chapter 12. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. There's a responsibility that we have to one another. First Thessalonians chapter 5, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
We have a responsibility to, to love and then to build up, to encourage, to strengthen one another, to edify one another. Then the text that we saw earlier, Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another. As the word stir up has the idea of, of stimulate, to try to, to, to think through how, how we can almost like a, think of like um, you know, when there's an electricity added to something and there's all these, these, these uh, electrodes firing all over the place. There's this electricity flowing. Uh, there's a stimulation. We're stirring each other up. We're, we're causing each other to move into action to love and good works. We're to lead them in that direction, to stir one another up to love and good works. So we see these principles. We see how this is supposed to play itself out. Well, who makes up the one another's? Someone might say, well, well, it can just be anyone who names the name of Christ. And I do think there's truth to that to a degree. That when we have brothers and sisters in Christ, even from other churches, that, that we do have a level of it. We should be loving them. We should be showing them uh, this kind of, of goodness towards them. But I think it's also true that these commands were given to local churches with the expectation that they had some level of genuine relationship with one another. Right? These things can't take place with every believer across the world on a day-to-day basis because we don't see them regularly. They're, we might may, we may co- cross paths at maybe a conference or maybe at, you know, at like a, a regional events or something like that. And, and we can enjoy that fellowship with one another But for this to really take place where we build one another up, even as we saw in that Ephesians passage earlier, if that's to take place where we're building one another up in love, there has to be some level of relationship. We have to be together. We have to be committed to one another on some level for these commands to be lived out. The churches that Paul was writing to and the author to the Hebrews was writing to the individuals who got those letters. They knew one another. They were committed to the same things. And they had those relationships built. So those are five principles that lead us to consider that church membership is really a biblical thing. Membership helps bring definition and helps bring the practical outworking of of how these principles can be lived out. Well, from there, from those principles, I've developed a couple of definitions and descriptions of, of how this can be practically working itself out, ideas that are built upon those principles for what membership can look like. Four concepts for us to see. First, membership is really a relational constructs. Joining membership at a local church enters you into a new relationship with that church where you are committing yourself to them and they to you for accountability, for service, for growth. There's a responsibility to one another if we're going to live out those one another passages. There's a relationship that is entered into and there's a commitment, a mutual commitment within the same body for these things to be carried out. Furthermore, if you are a believer in Christ and the Spirit has given you certain spiritual gifts 
And by joining membership at a local church, you're identifying the local church body where you are committing to use those gifts for the purposes of building others up. There's a relational construct that is developed in the concept of membership. It's a relational construct. It's also a practical mechanism. Membership helps bring, again, that that practical definition for whom you have this responsibility, with whom you will have these meaningful relationships. It helps the leaders to know for whom they are responsible and who the congregation is responsible to. It helps bring definition for for when when their time comes, when a vote is appropriate. The question is, well, who's allowed to vote? When church discipline must be practiced, membership helps bring clarity to that process. Membership is a practical mechanism that facilitates ministry, that facilitates the practical outworkings of the relationships within the church. Third, membership is about identification and commitments. This flows out of those two previous ideas of a a relational construct and a practical mechanism. Joining membership is a commitment. It's saying, you know, I, I will serve, I will be held accountable, I will support the ministries and the doctrine of this collection of saints. But it's also identification. It's choosing to identify yourself with a particular group of believers. It's the choice to identify with a certain body of doctrine contained in a doctrinal statement. It's identification with the philosophy of ministry. So when someone asks, oh, what church do you go to? What, to what church do you belong? When, when you say pillar fellowship, you're identifying yourself with that church body and everything that comes along with that. It's identification and commitments to service. And so finally, church membership is about accountability, service, growth, and gospel ministry. Joining membership means that you're willing to be held accountable by that church. And it means that you're willing to hold others accountable as well. So when you see a brother or sister in sin, we can lovingly speak to that person with a desire to restore them. If someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, I heard you say this or or, I saw you do that, it means we don't get defensive, but that we receive that and say, you know, maybe I need to think about that. Maybe I need to consider if there's truth to those challenges within my life. If someone is missing from our gatherings, maybe you you give them a call, you check up on them. There's there's accountability within the membership commitments where I commit to holding others accountable and they commit to holding me accountable. It's about service. We all have spiritual gifts. Our church membership is not like a Costco membership or something like that where it's like it's a consumeristic idea where it's all about, hey, I'm just here to see what I can get out of this church. I'm just, I'm just here to be served. You know, come on, bring it on. No, it's, it's about service to the body of Christ. We're called to give ourselves to service in some way. I think of the Apostle Paul who says, you know, I... I have spent myself in, my, in service to you. I'm spending and being spent for the sake of you. 
If I could modify JFK's famous line, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church, right? Maybe that's trite, but expresses a truth, right? Christians aren't supposed to be mere consumers within the church. They're supposed to be servants. Membership is about service. It's about growth. The expectation for every believer in Christ should never be that we reach a spiritual plateau and we just coast and we're just okay with that. No, we want to more and we want to know our Savior more and we want to know God's Word more. We want to know our Savior better. We want to have a closer relationship with Him. I mean, how many of us are satisfied with our, with our current prayer life? I know I'm not. We want to grow. We want to to grow in our ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And it's in the context of a local church community where we are committed to one another, where we pray for one another, when we edify one another, we serve one another, where that growth can take place. Finally, it's about gospel ministry. Church is not to be merely a location where we gather, but we are to be a people who go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ. Being part of a local church is designed to train us and equip us for this ministry. That's again Ephesians chapter 4. Equipped for the ministry. That's what we're supposed to be about. There will be opportunities for service in gospel ministry as we go about our community and membership says, yes, I want to proclaim the gospel with this particular group of people. Jesus Christ has saved me. He has given His life for me. He died on the cross that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ can have new life in Him. I want to be a part of bringing that same message to others. Joining membership at a local church says, this is the group I want to be a part of, that we proclaim that together. It's about gospel ministry. The concept, again, we don't have thou shalt practice church membership in the Bible. But we do have these principles born out from the Word of God. And we do have this, that I do believe that this represents a biblical theology of church membership that flows from those biblical principles. And my hope and my desire is that each and every one of us here would desire to be a member of Pillar Fellowship. I desire that. I, I want to see that happen. And to be, uh, just as we consider this, this series that we've been walking through, in many ways, this series as we've been considering, what is a local church? How, how are leaders to function? What, what are elders and deacons? What are our members? All of this is designed to help give us a, a better understanding of how churches can practically function based off of church Uh, based off of biblical principles and all of that designing to get us to a place where we will take steps forward in chartering our membership here at Pillar Fellowship. So in the weeks ahead, you you can expect to hear a little bit more about church membership and how we will pursue chartering that membership. Of course, as we stand here today, we don't have any members here, right? We're, we're, we're a brand new church plant. We're, we're learning and we're growing together about these things and how it works out. Well, today's goal was to examine the biblical principles so that we can see that membership really, how it's designed to help facilitate the responsibilities that we have before God from His Word 
And if we are to be good stewards and serve one another well, membership, I believe, is the biblical pathway forward to that end. And so we're going to talk about in in future weeks that we hope to have a, a membership class where we'll talk about some concepts more thoroughly. Will there be opportunity for questions and answers to, to talk about things just on a practical level about what it looks like, to talk about our constitution, to talk about our doctrinal statement, all those things, all that will be coming. But for today, we just need to seek the Lord that He would guide us through this, that He would give us the grace that we need to take these steps forward together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, the biblical principles, Lord, that are at play. Lord, we want to be faithful to your word. We don't want to distort your word or just kind of make things fit to an agenda of any sorts. We want to know, does the Bible actually lead us in this direction? And Lord, as we see these principles unfolding and we think of the practical realities, I, I do think that that is what you have given us. That as we seek to practice biblical church membership, Lord, we want to do so in a way that reflects these principles. Not in such a way that that conforms to the culture, not in such a way that just that conforms to whatever model that exists out there, but for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel of Christ, that we may be a well-ordered church that defends and upholds the truth of your word, that, that lives out the one another's. Lord, that we would be a church that honors you as we pursue chartering a membership together. Thank you again. I pray that we would honor you. Thank you for the grace that gives us the strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.